for a very comprehensive presentation. I have two quick questions, and for anyone, uh, you started out talking about the brain early on, and I wonder about your comments on the validity of the model on the acute-to-care transition that talks about neuroimmunological changes in the role of glial cells and actual physical changes within the brain and how the brain responds to pain in that transition. Is that still a valid model of thinking about the difference between acute and chronic pain? And the second quick question is if you'd comment on the prevalence and need to screen for full-blown psychopathology in these patients on the order of personality disorders, psychophysiological pain disorders, and, and how uh, they need to recognize them as, as people that do need to get out of the system very quickly if you're gonna have any sense of progress. Thank you. Can you, okay, thanks. And um, I'll, I'll address the, the first one and then I'll pass the microphone to Chris for the second one. Um, and, and I'll, I think I can address the first one. I, I think essentially was asking uh, about um, synaptic cellular changes in, in the brain and in, in response to long-standing pain. And, and I think um, what is clear from the animal research is there, there is potential for uh, functional and uh, changes in the nervous system in response to chronic pain. And the value of those animal models is you can measure those directly. Um, you can sacrifice the animals. You can do the necessary staining to identify those things. Um, so some of those lessons that we've learned in the nervous system, people are fairly confident that they're applicable um, in the humans. We do not have that histological evidence yet. Um, you can get that brain activation in, uh, information from functional imaging, um, but we don't know, uh, it's not as precise, I guess, as you know, actually being able to do the histology. Uh, so I think it's it just how comfortable you are with translating that work. Um, and there are different stages in those, and I think what we're talking about is identifying those folks if we're using a basic animal model where those synaptic changes have not been structural and they can still reverse some of the pathways so that the pain is modifiable. Because the bad news is if that looking at some of that basic work is um, most of our intervention strategies probably aren't enough to reverse those pathways once those functional structural changes have come because it's changing the way the proteins are expressed, changing the way, you know, the uh, actual structural change. And um, so I, hopefully that was close enough. If not, we can talk a little bit afterwards. And I'm going to pass the mic to Chris about the psychopathology. Okay, uh, th thank you for your question. Um, it's an important question about uh, psychopathology, about personality disorder and so forth. And of course in different systems of healthcare there will be different mechanisms for dealing with this. I think uh, in the US with a fee-for-service basis, it's particularly vulnerable to uh, people not having been screened out in terms of complete unsuitability for treatment. But I think there's two uh, concepts to bear in mind. The first is I try to draw the distinction between normal psychological processes and psychopathology. And additionally, what's happened, anything with a psychological sniff to it has meant that the physical therapists have run away from the patient or thrown them out of the clinic. And I've really been trying to emphasize that I think we've done something of a disservice to our patients uh, in not looking at their normal psychological processes. So I think every clinic has to uh, have its way of dealing with uh, drug abusers, addicts, personality disordered people. Uh, uh, people that report uh, uh, sexual abuse. Uh, so every clinician does have to have a way of passing these people on and deciding whether or not they're going to take them on board. Uh, 
but this training is not about managing these sorts of people. There is specialist expertise um, and, and we, we, we definitely recommend um, that, 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 that people know about that, but um, certainly in our training programs this issue has, has come a lot in particular. Um, you know, if a patient starts to get weepy, you know, is it a clinical depression of the sort that somebody else needs to see? And in fact, um, we found that um, in a big trial that's of 800 patients that we're about to report on, there was a very, very small number. Um, you know, they're, they're as uncommon as red flags, people that actually need to be triaged out of the system. Um, so it's an appropriate concern, but I don't think it should be an overwhelming concern. I think it should be contextualised. And by and large, unless you've got very, very clear indications that somebody's just manifestly unsuitable for treatment, uh, then there should be an attempt to grapple with some of the normal psychological processes. Uh, does anyone else want to comment on that? Bill? No, I, I think... Uh, Can you hear me? No. Can you hear me now? All right. I, I, I think the the, um, the issue that uh, to be cons to to think about along those lines is to to try not to stigmatize somebody and to try not to accept the notion that their pain problem is simply a manifestation of a psychiatric disorder, which we we tend to sort of do that sometimes. So the idea that if somebody has a really horrific psychiatric history, to think that they're not sort of still helpable. In the, in the context of low back pain is, is probably a, a bad way to go. So even though <clears throat> people come to you with all sorts of different problems, if somebody says they have arthritis, you don't automatically send them to a rheumatologist either. So you, I think it doesn't necessarily, because somebody has a psychiatric history, doesn't negate your treatment. Is it, we'll go right back there. Okay, we'll go to the front. Good morning. Good morning. Megan Brooks, I'm a second year DPT student at Boston University. And I was wondering if in the new issue you gave any recommendations on how to grade exercise or grade exposure for patients considering psychosocial. I was wondering if in the new issue you gave any recommendations on how to grade exercise or grade exposure for patients considering psychosocial factors of their low back pain? Uh, what we did in the issue is we gave broad um, recommendations, but there's a, there's a whole host of references um, for both more in-depth conceptual work in that area and also trials that have fairly trans, you know, transparent methods so that you can look into specific ways of doing it. Because everyone does it a little bit differently. Um, in the, the group from the Netherlands, their exposure is not typically delivered by physical therapists. It's delivered by psychologists. In the studies that I've done, it's the complete opposite. We deliver, I train the therapist to deliver exposure. So you just kind of have to look into each of those and, and, and look at them. It's um, you know, we, we had a certain idea and, and really what, that would have been a topic of one paper almost to get into those issues and I think we just wanted to make it more of a um, here are the potentials and here's some good information that you can go to really dig into it if you want to. So the references are probably more directly what you're, what you're interested in but um, there is some detail but not enough that you could, you could um, you know, start doing it right away. 
But the key is to understand with exposure, you need to measure the fear specifically in a different, in, in a way um, that is different than most questionnaires are, because in those questionnaires they're talking about general fears, not specific fears, and the general fears sometimes are quite different than the specific fears. Did you want to say? Uh, Steve. This is working, working now? Okay. Uh, maybe this is more for you and Julie, and I'm going to take this for more of a a less scientific, more clinical, practical approach. Um, isn't it interesting that behavior and pain is probably the majority of what we treat, and yet it's not in our normative model at the detail <laughs> that you talk about? So I, I think this is great that you're bringing this up, and probably is very valuable to us as clinicians. Um, you know, research outcomes, research measures give us good sort of uh, descriptions in terms of how we might approach patients and look at looking at diagnosis and prognosis and how we choose our interventions. But uh, those of us that have sort of transferred over into EMR, uh, these patients are very difficult to document and to put the measures in. It's great, you can get an oswestry in there, you can do all these kinds of other measures, and they go in very nicely. But the real challenge is in the descriptors and, and providing good data, I guess, for you people in terms of where your research goes. And, you know, I think what would really help us as clinicians is that, and maybe I'm, pre maybe I'm not preaching to the choir, or maybe it's just me, I don't know, but. These are very difficult patients to do adequate defensible and outcome-oriented documentation, particularly when we start looking at severity and complexity model because these really add a lot of time and different variables in terms of how we might want to charge for this kind of service, and yet we see a lot of these patients. So I'm just asking maybe as we go along and you guys develop more research that we bring that into the EMR domain so that we as clinicians can give you better data, and also so we can better get better outcomes in terms of how, what we're doing. I don't know if that makes sense. It's a real challenge, I think, from, from my perspective, in terms of um, doing good defensible handoff documentation and other clinicians so we understand these levels of variables, and also in terms of how we might document in terms of the outcomes we have. Yeah, I, I guess I can say a couple things um, in response to that. I, you know, I, the, the issue of the value of the EMR from a researcher's perspective is, is a, it, it, there's the good and the bad. Um, but one of the things that, um, that I've found exciting about working with our system, at least at Intermountain, is the ability to leverage the information from the EMR relative to um, some of these comorbidities with, um, in, in, in be able to capture that information in a larger sense. So, um, you know, that allows us to have a repository of information to create, um, uh, at least to be able to bring into our physical therapy outcomes database information on comorbid conditions that, that are documented in EMR. Now, I think you're um, bringing up an excellent point of, do they show up there? Because we know they show up in our patients, but, but are they identified and in some way um, captured electronically so that we can account for that as we look at the effectiveness of our care? Is that kind of getting at what you're talking about? Well, even more importantly, to at least from, from a clinical practical perspective, in order to, uh, to tease out that data, not just from the patient, but get it into the documentation system in a way that is effective and efficient, um, these, these, there is more time, at least from my perspective, spent on typing long sentences and paragraphs because that kind of information isn't in, a, it isn't in an adequate drop-down menu to expedite the process. 
And as much as I would, my druthers would be not even to deal with EMR. But but the point is, we do have to deal with it. And you know, I look to, I look at two things. I look at at, at sort of a, a clinical model, and I look at a research model. And it's our responsibility to give good data back to ter in terms of how we define and get our outcomes for reimbursement or otherwise in terms of efficacy. Yeah. So right now, the real challenge that I see is is that we're getting great information about behavioral science out here and how it's implemented in the clinic. But the people that are designing the documentation software are not getting that information, and it makes it very challenging for us to provide that. So I was yeah. saying that you seem to have some really good ways of teasing that data out, and I'm saying, how can we get that into the system? Yeah, and, and that's a challenge that's not unique to this domain in the sense of um, the, the amount of information that we'd like to have for research and clinical purposes and, and making it in a user-friendly format where uh, it's, it's, and it's not only an electronics issue, it's also uh, just a, uh, a, a, an issue of clinical practice and how busy people are and, and you know, 30-item questionnaires just don't fly. The only thing I'll briefly add is I, I don't have as much experience directly working with these systems, but um, I have worked a little bit with the photo folks, and I know we probably just need to develop a behavioral module. So if the patient is appropriate, you click on it and it has a bunch of check marks that you that you hit on. You know that for some of these commonly used descriptors, you still might not be able to do exactly as detailed, but we could develop, you know, a behavioral module, and, and I, I know in photo there's a pain module because I've talked to Dennis about it, and it's it's good, but it's not it's not great, and and you know, so you could have that option in these systems. So then you're not burdened to do it for everyone; it just kind of pops up. Well, let me say that you're lucky you don't have to deal with the MR that much. And <laughs> but, the, but the more important point is that that. Um, you know, we, we want to get the data. EMR is really set up well for documentation of billing, and that's only one part of it. The other part is defensible documentation, but more importantly, to give people like yourselves who are doing the research clinical data, and that's really what I'm getting to, is how can we get that data in there to make it so that you guys can get it better? Right, well, we need to develop the modules. We need to get those, you know, those things, because, and then hopefully it can be implemented with the documentation and the billing. We'll go on to the next. Hi, great presentation, thank you. Thanks. My quick question, um, if you are familiar, what's your opinion about the job done and published by John Sarnor, medical doctor and professor at New York University Medical Center? And I'm talking about his uh, theory uh, that this uh, idiopathic back pain is caused primarily by uh, tension myositis syndrome, which is part of the psychosomatic disorders. That's in case if you are familiar with that. Yeah, I'm, I don't know that I'm familiar with that. I didn't catch the question. Okay. Can you, can you repeat the... Yeah, this microphone's working too, I think. No, I can come closer. Are you familiar with the germ Sarno's uh, published uh, work that's a professor from New York University. Not off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very familiar to what we, we talked here today. So I was thinking that you are aware of that, but in case if you're not, that's a relevant question. Does, okay, thank you. Uh, excellent presentation. Um, uh, just a question about uh, the the where you, where you envisioned. Um, what kind of questionnaire should be administered uh, by 
by a busy clinician in, in a clinic with typical patients with low back pain. Do you envision the START uh, screening questionnaire uh, being adequate enough to, to capture the needed yellow flags? Do we, do we think that maybe that uh, we need to do that in addition to uh, the, the, the FABQ and, and the pain catastrophizing scale? Or how, how many is enough and, and, and when do we get to that point that, yeah, that's given us uh, the, the tipping point of the data? I think that's a good question and it depends on the purpose of you using the questionnaire. The Starbuck tool was developed uh, very much as a simple screener. It's not really a clinical decision maker because it doesn't tell you anything about the particular nature uh, of the problem. It simply tells you there's a problem. And we have been developing kind of stem and leaf uh, approaches to interviewing that we've been training physical therapists in uh, as part of the, the trial that we'll be reporting on soon. Um, I think. Uh, what we find is that physical therapists uh, find it useful to have an additional screen and what we've, we've also been producing some slightly more sensitive to change measures using these contracts. So for example, uh, if the patient looked initially as if there might be a problem with depressed mood or catastrophizing or fear, um, the physical therapist would get a simple rating of that in a scale at the beginning of treatment. I think when one is talking about some of the more com uh, complicated questionnaires. I think these really are probably more of use uh, in tertiary care clinics and I think what we've been trying to uh, uh, encourage um, is development of the, um, uh, the initial assessment of the patient, um, the patient-centered approach, getting a clear understanding of the nature of these things. Of course, that's a very individual approach with an individual patient uh, and while we recommend that for clinical management, uh, in a research or evaluative context, if you want to look at the case mix in your clinic or look at outcome, you may want in parallel to collect some of the information. But I think these different measurement instruments are useful for different purposes. So it depends very much uh, uh, on the type of clinic, the type of service you're offering, and to extent also on the case mix, because we still don't know a lot about differences across different types of clinics uh, in the kind of statistics of how people cough up as simple, moderate, or highly complex on these instruments. I think I'd just say the same thing in the sense that I, I think the real key question is what are you going to do with the information? What do you, what, and that's, you know, specific to the context that you're collecting it in. And, and um, if, if you're not using that information for any particular purpose, then I'd say none. Um, but I think it's really a question of, you know, are you in kind of a situation where you're looking at almost a, a screening and triage kind of more primary care setup, or are you in a more tertiary kind of setting where you're looking at monitoring treatment and predicting outcomes? So I, I think it really has to be very much site-specific to what your needs are and how you're going to use the information. So I guess the, the follow-up question then is uh, our cutoffs for fear, I think are kind of a midpoint still in the FABQ uh, or, or uh, maybe a, a different cutoff on the, the Tampa scale, um, but is there a cutoff for catastrophizing or, or are those two kind of blending together? Um, you know, the issue with the cutoff scores is, is um, there's two ways. A lot of them are based just on the median split, which is right around the middle. Um, and then there are some other folks who have looked at other methods. To the best of my knowledge, um, the, the pain catastrophizing scale doesn't have a cutoff score, but the way it's been used in the prevention of disability program is uh, they look at it in combination with the Tampa scale, and if you're above the median on both, you're considered at risk, and if you're in the 75th percentile for either one of them, then you're considered at risk. So that's how it's been applied. 
um, but uh, the you know the the classic cutoff score approach um, hasn't been used for that one. And interestingly, neither from the Tampa. And, and I think part of it is, again, conceptually, psychologists do not like to dichotomize things. Um, I've learned that, too. Uh, because if the data is normally distributed, which it is, it's very hard to draw a cutoff line. And I've had some discussions with a colleague at work, Mike Robinson, and he feels very strongly that we should be looking at regression equation approaches. And um, I always think of the analogy for determining maximal heart rate. That's essentially a regression equation. We know what you, you know, there's a very simple way to do that. Uh, we don't just look at someone, you know, get their age and say you have a high heart rate or a low heart rate. Um, so I think we need to get some maybe a little more sophisticated approaches to determining risk and saying, you know, we think based on these three things, your Oswestry score will be between 30 and 40 in four weeks instead of, you know, this high or low thing. So I, th I think that's kind of where we're headed. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes. Is that better? Okay. I agree with my colleagues. An excellent presentation. So thank oh, thank you. Um, and I just was wondering if, if some of the research I'll go back and, and um, look at that you presented today as well as in the, the May issue. Do you, have you looked at the belief systems of the practitioner, the clinician? Um, and in and, and that, um, uh, saying that, I would say not just the PTs we're talking to here today, but our, our physicians and their, their belief systems about pain, pain mechanisms, where it's coming from. I was personally happy not to see the word malingering um, on, on the, uh, the slides here today. So that would be question number one. Okay, um, I'm going to repeat the question because we're going to ask this guy to answer it, and um, he, he's having a hard time hearing the microphone. Oh, sorry about that. So essentially the question is, um, we presented a lot of data on patient beliefs, and has the, the therapist or the healthcare provider, had their beliefs been looked at in, in the role of this? So I'm going to pass that to, to Chris Mink. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, there's a specific review article um, in clinical rheumatology related research, uh, which I headed up along with Nadine Foster, which came out in March 2010, where we reviewed the evidence for these. Uh, there's one part of our unit has been looking at the influence of therapists' beliefs, primarily uh, physical therapists and primary care practitioners, on their approach to treatment. Uh, there have been attempts to talk, uh, there's a, an instrument where you can uh, scale people in terms of the extent of which they're biomedical or psychosocial in the way they think. It's got some limitations as an instrument, but um, we, we certainly uh, have been investigating that. Um, and uh, of course it has got implications uh, for training. Uh, and we certainly demonstrated in our training programs that we've shifted uh, therapists' beliefs uh, uh, um, as a consequence of our training. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. Yes, yes it does. And then just a, a lead up question, or a secondary question. Um, I probably don't use functional outcome questionnaires as much as I should, the FABQ we do use in our, our clinic. But um, are there other clinical signs, symptoms, and um, data that we can start to look at. And I know the START um, uh, research that Julie brought up said that there was not a good correlation between the, the, the PT's uh, predictive value just with observation clinical exam. But are there some nuggets that might have been found in there that start to lead us down a road of signs and symptoms, a clinical exam that might point us in the right direction with these things? Yeah, I, I'm not aware that there's been uh, research that's really validated um, uh, 
uh, for lack of a better word, more subjective impressions that the clinician draws and their accuracy in identifying the sorts of um, issues that we're talking about. And, and that uh, I think the, the, the small study that I brought up is, is fairly typical of the literature in this area that um, although I, I certainly know clinicians who intuitively get this, uh, it, 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 relying on that or generalizing that seems to be really dicey. So I, I, I think, unfortunately, it's 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 not something that's easily picked up on from those kind of clues. And I'll just quickly add to that, and then we'll have time for the last question there. Um, there we did a. I worked with a doctoral student, Darren Colley, who had an idea to look at that exactly, and and similar. Julie said the trend is he just had the therapist rate what their perceived fear was on a zero to 10 or on a VAS. And then we looked at it in correlation with the FABQ and it was, it was not a very good correlation. So even just having the therapist, it was a, a step above just judgment. We were saying, okay, what is, or he asked them, what is the fear level from zero to 10 for this patient? And it wasn't correlated as well as we would have liked it to have been, because we were thinking, he was thinking of that as a shortcut kind of way. But um, again, Julie kind of brought up a good point. What is the gold standard then? But um, in comparison to these more psychometrically sound questionnaires, just that simple snapshot or thought of the therapist doesn't seem to capture the same information. So. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for the presentations. Uh, let's say we identify somebody in the clinic uh, with a high uh, FABQ score. Um, based on the best evidence we have so far, uh, which article would you recommend a clinician uh, to use in a clinic uh, to guide a clinician uh, to, uh, as far as the education piece, the graded uh, exercise piece, and even the uh, graded exposure piece? Well, anything I've written, right? Is that the right way to? So, um, no, I think, first of all, um, when you really talk about best evidence, remember we're not talking about an individual article a lot of times. Uh, an individual article may be a great model or have a good program, but we're looking at com compilation. And um, in a lot of ways, and, and we're not dodging this completely, there's not a lot, there's not, not enough studies that look at it this, the way that we're suggesting to, to say what the best evidence is. I think there are some good examples that were highlighted um, in, the, in the talk of trying to match that. But to say, you know, what is the best evidence right now, we're a little bit, um, and, and that's brought up in systematic reviews on this topic. There was a good one in PTJ on it. So then you're kind of left at looking at models um, that implemented it effectively. And I think it really is a decision of what you think you can translate into the clinics. I think the brief education models, which have been used in primary care, um, it's a little noticeable that they haven't been translated as much into PT settings because they're easy, very easy to implement, um, and they do seem to show consistently a, a small treatment effect. So, you know, if you're looking for best evidence with systematic review, I think the brief education intervention might be one of the ways to go. The graded exercise and exposure approaches are. Um, uh, there's just not as much strong evidence, but a lot of them are looked at from that prognostic factor aspect where they're not looking at the, the uh, interaction with the level of the fear. So they're, they're being targeted to people with high and low psychological distress and the effects may get washed out. But this, you know, this is being remedied somewhat in, in a large trial that's um, being reported soon and, and we'll have some new data to add to that evidence base. 
Okay, I think we're going to have to wind it up. Two lots of thanks to you all for coming and the opportunity to uh, present our work, and in particular to my co-presenters. Thank you very much.